welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Liz Crow. And this is episode two in our special series with Dr. Liz Crow talking about all things burnout and well-being in healthcare. If you haven't heard episode one yet, I would encourage you to go back and have a listen. It's all about burnout and how we describe burnout. And we're going to be building on those themes in this episode too. So if you haven't heard it, pause this one, go back, download that episode number one, and we'll see you again soon. If you have, you'll no doubt know already who Liz Crow is, and you'll already have some idea about what we're going to be talking about. It's probably worth, before we start this, just refreshing a little bit of what we said about burnout in episode one, just as a brief reminder. So very quickly, we had those three elements of burnout, all measured by the Maslach Burnout Inventory, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and personal accomplishment. We talked about how those can be affecting people, but really how burnout is a systems issue. And then we talked about the six things that you felt, and I think many of us feel can affect your risk of burnout. And those were excessive workload, a lack of control and autonomy, having recognition and rewards, a decent amount of social support, fairness and transparency at work, and then having people you work with share your values. So that's a quick fly through the headlines from episode one. But here in episode two, we're going to be talking about that famous word, that word that's thrown around even more than burnout, well-being. So Liz, let's start with well-being is just the opposite of burnout, right? Wrong. Well, that's not what my research has found. And I think this is what's really tricky because if you look at the well-being literature, often what it is is that someone has measured burnout and if it's not present, they assume those people have got well-being. In my thesis, I measured burnout using the Maslach Burnout Inventory to look at the systemic things that were bothering people in intensive care. I measured meaning-making at work you know, what are the things that people feel connect them to their values, the importance of what they're doing, the way that they actually take meaning from their work. I measured life satisfaction and psychological distress. When I did the research and I did, I measured it as accurately as you can using the Maslach Burnout Inventory, our burnout was actually quite low. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that even people who had very high burnout could also have high meaning making and a good satisfaction with life. You know, like everyone, I started off my research believing that moral distress, burnout, compassion fatigue, depression, psychological distress all sat down one end of the continuum. And at the far extreme end was all the great things about being a healthcare professional, meaning and having satisfaction with life and joy, feeling like you enjoyed the work. And that's not what I found. What I actually found is that life is messy and in the one shift you can be frustrated by the bureaucracy, you can think the team leader is a bit of a jerk and not like them at all, and then have a really lovely, powerful, meaning experience with a patient where you think, I'm warm and fuzzy, I really love this job. Then you could be called to a resus that's really test your skills and while it's a bit stressful it's also really stimulating and you enjoy those aspects of it you can feel very proud of that experience and then two hours later when that person dies you can still feel a sense of sadness around that even though you've done a good job and so this is what's so complicated about well-being it's not when everything is great you have good well-being you can have struggles you can have parts of your life that aren't going well and parts of your life that are going well and you can still experience well-being. So is well-being a binary thing? Is it you either have it or you don't? Or is it a scale whereby, yeah, I feel okay today and I didn't feel great yesterday and 
And how is this different from, well, I think what used to be called life? Yeah, well, there is some people who say, who say, you know, like burnout and being dissatisfied is just the hell of life, right? And some of this is a mindset. This is what's so so interesting about it. So there are definitely things that we know that affect our well-being, and and you know, just even psychological distress, feeling sad for our patients, it can affect our well-being, but it doesn't mean that our well-being is dreadful when we feel sad about them. And I think a really easy way to kind of shape this conversation up is if we look at Martin Seligman's work around well-being, where he says there are five dimensions. Sometimes he adds a sixth, which is your own physical and mental health, but there are five dimensions to well-being. And he calls it PERMA because, you know, everybody loves an acronym. And PERMA stands for positive emotions, engagement, R is for relationships, M is for meaning, and A is for accomplishment. And I think that if we look at well-being in terms of those things, we can get to the root of the problem. Because I, I you know, I speak of this around this all of the time. And you know, I'll say to an audience, you know, whether it's of 10 people or a thousand people, who wants better well-being? And most people will put up their hands. For the people who don't put up their hands, I say, is it true this morning that you got up and looked in the mirror and thought, it is ridiculous how well I am at the moment. Like I couldn't be a finer specimen. Most people laugh. Most people could do something that would be helpful towards their well-being every day. But when you ask people, how would you know if you had well-being? Or how do you get well-being? What is it that's currently challenging your well-being? Or when are you at your best during the day? Or what's the things that fill your cup? Often people have no clue. Well-being is overused as a term just like burnout is overused as a term. And they are not the antithesis of each other. That sometimes systematically things can drive us crazy and we can be angry at the system and disillusioned by it but that our overall well-being can still be intact. So why now do we end up calling this well-being? Because what you're describing to me, I think, is happy and content. If I'm happy and content, I've got well-being, but we seem to have given it this broad brushstroke. Is it wrong to be happy? Is it wrong that we call it that? Somehow giving it a well-being term means, oh, we can talk about it now. Is well-being just happiness? I think well-being is very different to happiness and actually there's some very strong research and evidence that says the more we chase happiness, the more we're desperate for happiness or to reach this destination called happiness, the more depressed and distressed we're likely to become. So there are two types of happiness essentially if you're going to broadly divide them up. There's this thing called hedonistic happiness. And what that is, I think, is often the thing that people are chasing. And hedonistic happiness is instant gratification. So you finish work and you walk in the door, you have a mouthful of a beer or a glass of your favourite Chardonnay. In that first mouthful, you get this huge hedonistic happiness. (sighs) Ah, I'm home. I I can have a drink of alcohol. I I can relax. But of course, Because it's hedonistic happiness, it's there and then it's gone. So we have one mouthful and it's not like that happiness is sustainable. We need another mouthful and then another mouthful. Most people don't stop at a glass. Oh, that first glass of, you know, Chardonnay, that first glass of beer or that first chocolate biscuit or that first bag of crisps, 
It made me feel good just for that moment, that first episode of Game of Thrones. It made me feel good, but it doesn't last until we keep chasing more, more, more. You know, I will be happy when I get this new pair of shoes. I will be happy when I lose five kilos. That's hedonistic happiness. And the science behind hedonistic happiness very clearly says it's unsustainable as human nature will keep searching something bigger, better, more, and that any materialistic goods that we have, the most amount of happiness it can give you is 13 weeks. Lamborghini, 13 weeks. Diamond ring, 13 weeks. That's the maximum amount of happiness stuff can give you. I'm willing to try that if you want to lend me a Lamborghini. I will give it a go. Um, But, I mean, what a 13 weeks they would be. (laughs) See, whereas I could not care. I drive a bomby old car and an elderly gentleman backed into me a few months ago and smashed in all the side. And I got out of the car and he was crying. He was taking his even older mother to the nursing home that day. And I just said, "Don't, don't even worry about it, mate. (laughs) <laughs> didn't even get his details wished him well my partner Nick was very unhappy with that <laughs> I don't care about cars and this is what I'm saying hedonistic happiness is quite individual and it's there and then it's gone you might think I'd really love a Lamborghini but then you probably want a Lamborghini with a better sound system or maybe you would have colored it differently or maybe what you need to go with Lamborghini is better clothes or a prettier or a more handsome partner. I want, I want, I want. So that's one type of happiness. So I think we can all recognise those times where we want to be hedonistic. And I do acknowledge that it is short-lived, isn't it? It doesn't last long. You did promise us two types. I'm hoping the second type is more prolonged. What's the second type of happiness? That's right. So the second type of happiness is something that's called eudaimonic eudaimonic happiness and what that means is is that it's found in value in purpose in meaning making they're the people who can constantly give to others because that's how they form a sense of happiness eudaimonic happiness at work is you know in the last episode you said a radiographer when you were sick tucked in your toes into the blanket and it made you feel warm and fuzzy That's eudaimonic happiness and it was probably something you experienced and also the radiographer who did it experienced it as well. Eudaimonic happiness is not found in stuff. It's not found in things that you can buy. It's very much found in your contribution to the world as defined by your values. So we've got this slight conflict then between well-being and happiness. And we've got these different types of happiness that we can see in ourselves. I did notice when you talked about Seligman's PERMA, those five different things had a lot of crossover as what you were talking about before about preventing burnout in episode one. So positive emotional connection, engagement, relationships, uh, meaning making and accomplishment, they do have some crossover. So clearly there is some elements of well-being that are protective against burnout, aren't there? Exactly. So remembering that burnout actually is measuring something systemic, but burnout can coexist with well-being. That's what people have to get their heads around. So you can say, you know, at any given time, these are the things that I really hate about work. Excessive workload, not enough resources, feeling like the boss doesn't see me, doesn't understand what I need, nobody listens to us, we're just the worker bees on the ground. Those are feelings that can create burnout. But this eudaimonic happiness 
or this connection to well-being that can come from having a good laugh at work or feeling optimistic about the future, finding the work engaging. So again, my thesis found that one of the big protective factors for people's well-being was be finding the work stimulating. So often when people report on critical care, they say, you know, your tasks can change every 90 seconds, you're moving too fast, you've got to know this big breadth of things around all sorts of things, burns, bleeds, cuts, infections, syndromes, sickness, too much, whereas in actual fact my thesis found that people love that. And I think it's true, you know, like, most of us who work in crit care get a bit bored if there's not enough on. You know, one of the things we found that was impacting people during COVID is that people were a bit bored. They didn't do critical care to specialise in one area. They wanted to go back to seeing more variety of things. So the engagement can be this stimulating element of how much you actually enjoy what you're doing. Relationships, this comes back again and again about how important it is that we like, trust, enjoy the company, respect our colleagues. Our studies that we did during COVID, in the UK, when you guys didn't have the vaccination, some of you didn't have the the PPE that you needed, you were coming in not necessarily because you were terrified about what, what would happen to your patients. People came into work because they cared about their colleagues. They didn't want to let them down. This idea of social relationships, us feeling connected to other people, is really important in terms of well-being. Meaning-making, accomplishment, they all do have this overlap. I just want to pause for one second and just ask you a little bit about a phrase that I've heard recently, which is toxic positivity. So in amongst all of this, we've talked about having a positive outlook. We've talked about being happy at work. We've talked about all those different things. I've mentioned how in the episode one, I'm not mad keen on the idea of calling my work team family. It all feels a bit too much to me. Where does being positive and affirming people and helping them develop, when does that become toxic and too much? Is it just that people see through the... Toxic positivity is when you're like, there's nothing wrong. (laughs) Anyone who works in health knows that there's so many things that are wrong that need rectification in our system. And for some people across the world, that includes wages, safety, physical safety at work is being neglected. There are so many things going on with health. So I don't believe in toxic positivity. I'm an absolute realist. At any given time, in any given shift, there are millions of things that could be resolved within the system if we had the resources or we had leaders who were listening. I think that toxic positivity comes when there's no psychological safety, when someone tries to say, I've got a concern or I'm worried or we need, and someone's like, oh, you just need to do more mindfulness or you need to come at this from a more positive viewpoint. That's what I think toxic positivity is. I can still believe that on my worst days, and I've got to say, I've had days at work that have been so distressing, I have vomited. I've had days at work that have been so distressing, I have felt like I would not be able to return. I have cases that happened 10, 15 years ago that I can still have nightmares about. I'm not someone, you know, I've been assaulted at work. I'm not someone who's lived in this lovely, happy rainbows and unicorns type environment. However, I am still always able to say that on my worst days at work, I still don't believe that I've ever had days as bad as my patients. 
that I've looked after. And on my worst days, that there have still been so many things that I can see that were important or meaningful or kept me connected to my colleagues. So that's why I don't believe I'm someone who spreads toxic positivity because I think I'm a realist. I can see the problems, but I refuse to believe that health is the worst place in the world to work and that there isn't still a lot of good that we can do. Toxic positivity sounds to me a bit like gaslighting, this idea of people yeah. just pretending that bad stuff isn't happening when actually the people know full well it's happening and, and they feel they're, they're trying to be reinvented while seeing, seeing the lies around them. I think a lot of this is about honesty, isn't it? And acknowledging problems and then tackling them at their core. And a lot of the words you've used just triggered something in my mind about the, the Maslow's hierarchy of, of well-being. And, and we did a post on this in St. Emlyn's about what it is we need to build on in order to have that well-being. And, and you've talked about the, the physiological needs and the safety. Can you just expand a little bit on what the Maslow work talked about and how we can use that towards our efforts to, to give our staff a better environment to be in? Again, Ian, I think you're right. You, you know, if we're going to look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think they kind of do fit with the PERMA model and exactly what we've been talking about in the ways that we prevent burnout. So the first is we have physiological needs. We, we all have those. We have the need for air, for water, for food, for shelter, clothing, etc. And these are our basic physiological needs. So whether that's in a shift you know, we all know that if we if we don't pee and we don't drink, we don't eat, most of us mere mortals will get hangry. That starts to affect our well-being. Then as we move up, we go to safety needs. So we need security around our places of employment. We need to know that we have the resources to do the job and we need to have personal safety and security. And that's not just about physical safety. That's also about psychological safety in the way that we operate with our teams. This idea of belonging and love comes back to exactly this whole idea of relationships. Relationships isn't numbers. You know, you don't need X amount. I saw some funny research that said that women need at least five good friends and men need one. So obviously women are much higher needs. But quality of relationships is not about volume. It's about really feeling like if I needed someone, they are there that they can see me as my true self and accept me for exactly who I am. People don't find this funny, but I have my own definition of quality of relationships, and that is the person you call when you've got norovirus, covered in diarrhea, and then you throw up on yourself and you slip over in the hallway on the way to the toilet. They're the people that you can call. It should be a very small number. You should not be calling the bulk of people when you're covered in that sort of human and bodily fluids. Then there's the esteem safe. This is really about positive emotions, personal accomplishment, if we're going to bring it back to a burnout point of view, feeling like we've got autonomy and agency over our own lives and that we can make a difference in what it is that we're doing. And self-actualization sits very strongly with accomplishment and meaning-making. So we've known all of these things for a very long time, yet for some reason we don't seem to be able to tap into them now when we need them most. So well-being is a broad range. Just like burnout is multifactorial, well-being is also multifactorial. And the tricky thing is, is that things that fill my well-being may be completely different 
to the things that fill the well-being of my colleagues. Just going back to that Maslow hierarchy, I think the thing just want to accentuate if you've not heard of that before or you've not seen it is that it's a pyramid where you build on the first things and you have to have that first before you get the next one so this is where I get so frustrated about well-being champions and and all those sorts of initiatives that we see all the time is that unless you can go to the toilet and get something to eat and you can get a drink of water at work don't even bother with the rest because that is the building blocks on which you start then you can think about safety So that's the idea that going to work, you feel secure. It was about PPE and COVID. The bits at the top are about the extras. That's the mindfulness. It's the ice lollies. It's the, it's the, for want of a better word, token gestures. And what I worry about is that people leap straight to the top of that pyramid before they tackle the bits at the bottom. Because actually building a toilet is so much harder. I couldn't agree more, Ian. Um, I get completely frustrated where people ring and say, you know, we want to start this wellbeing committee and the thing that we're going to do is have a trivia night and we're also going to have chocolates in uh, the handover room and uh, we're going to make sure that we get an employee of the month every month. Now, all of these things are great if they sit on the foundations of fundamental wellbeing. And that is, you're exactly right. Can I get what I need at work? Just the the basics. Can I go to lunch? Can I get my annual leave when I ask for it? Am I allowed to have professional development leave? Do I get the odd weekend off? When I do a run of nights, do I get a break? Does my boss know my name? Does my boss acknowledge what it is that I do? Am I a junior doctor that when I get into a rotation, people call, call you, hey, you, even though I'm on that rotation for six weeks. Does anyone know who you were? If you didn't show up for work, would anyone call and check in on you? We have to get these fundamental things right. And the thing that I find frustrating about that is that when I was at kindergarten and I was three years old, I was taught these fundamentals. Someone comes into a room, I say hello, I introduce myself, and I care about them as a human being. And we've got to come back to those basic, those very basic things if we're going to really look after each other. And this is a very strong message, I think, from from you, from me, from the podcast, from St. Emlyn's, is that well-being is about doing the fundamentals well and then building on those, isn't it? Everything we've talked about shouldn't be hard, should it? This is all stuff that is about being a decent human being, right? Well, it is, but also it has to be matched by the systemic things in the organisations of which we work. And if the systemic things are so grossly out of whack that it can make it very hard for us to hold on to to the fundamentals, people can often don't have control over their rosters. And so that can affect their well-being because it disrupts their positive emotions. It disrupts you know, their relationships, their ability to plan ahead. If you're a single person and you need to go on Tinder to find a partner or to investigate relationships, but your roster keeps changing every two seconds and when you come off nights, you go straight on to days and you never feel rested and you always look tired and harried and, when you know, you say to the person you've met on Tinder, I am going to meet you, I can't meet you, I cancel, and then the person gives up on you and that does affect your well-being. We have to get the fundamentals right, but actually the system has to get the fundamentals right as well. 
We've described an awful lot of things that can affect well-being that sometimes we're asking other people to do. We're asking other people to build us a toilet or make sure there's a water fountain or or those things which frankly are quite reasonable. But what about ourselves? How can we be self-aware to make sure that we're developing in the in the best way we can? Yeah, well, you've used the word, you've hit the nail on the head, Ian. Self-awareness is really important in well-being. And I guess I get some frustration when people come to a well-being workshop and they kind of want to be anointed with well-being or anointed with resilience. All of this stuff takes awful amounts of insight, reflection. It's an active process. You don't get to a stage of your career and, oh, my goodness, I've been out seven years from university and now I've got well-being and resilience. These things are active and it's almost like a painful awareness. So some things I would encourage people to think about, when are you at your best during the day? When is your energy at its lowest? What are the foods that bring you up high and then make you drop really rapidly that you know you shouldn't eat but you always do? What's your numbing agent? What I mean by that is all of us, when we've had a bad day, have a a default numbing agent that we go to without a conscious thought. So do you pull into McDonald's on the way home? Do you stop in and get alcohol? Uh, Do you get home from work and just turn on the TV and not move and become like a sloth on the couch? Do you come home and run 10 miles hard until you're completely exhausted and you feel nothing and you know you're just going to to go to bed? Do you do something really constructive? Like, do you paint? Do you go to a singing lesson? Is your numbing agent good for your well-being or is it bad? So if I'm not careful, crisps or chips, whatever you want to call them, I love salt. And when I am stressed or when I am upset, all I want to do is eat. I have to be really mindful of it. So for you, is it like, do you scroll just aimlessly on social media? Do you overshop? Do you overeat? Do you overindulge in alcohol, in chocolate? Do you, as I said, sit in front of the TV or do you do something that's healthy? So know your numbing agent. Know who it is in your life that always can lift you. Know who it is in your life that you can show your real, true, raw self and they can hold you in that space. Know who it is in your life that always brings you down. You know, sometimes we have family members or flatmates who we like in small doses or under certain circumstances. But if you've had a really bad day, maybe it's not the time to go and visit the mother-in-law or maybe it's not the time to hang out with the toxic friend because you have nothing in the tank and you can't protect yourself against their cynicisms and their barbs and their attacks. This is what well-being looks like. You've got to pull apart your own life and work out what do you do that is good for you, what do you do that is not so good for you. There isn't a person listening to this podcast that doesn't understand how they need to eat, that doesn't understand that exercise and movement isn't important, that doesn't understand that they need quality of relationships. And yet all of us at times eat and drink the wrong things. Lots of us don't do anywhere near enough exercise or movement as we should. And all of us continue to sometimes look after or nurture uh, relationships that are not healthy for us or not spend enough time with people who really enrich our lives as we should. Now, 
I think it's really important to say that some of the things that you've said there are really challenging for me and for others. And a lot of those numbing agents you talk about are, are quite hard to give up. And it's all well and good to say, oh, eat well and exercise. But it's not that straightforward, is it? And I suppose that's part of the self-awareness. And I was going through that list thinking about it. Well, so I know that my time of day is I work much better in the mornings. And by two o'clock in the afternoon, I want to snooze. And I know that my food is Diet Coke. I reach for it when I want a little lift and it's a bit of a treat. Uh, and I know that if I have it late at night, I won't sleep. And my numbing agent is probably chocolate, I must admit. And I can end up having a whole bar of an evening. Uh, and that's on a good day uh, when I feel relatively happy. And that's my hedonistic happiness as well, I guess, bringing it all together. I don't think you're saying we deny ourselves our treats and we deny ourselves the occasional hedonistic moment. But I think what you're trying to say is that be aware of those and then see what you can do to to temper those and Many years ago, we did a podcast and, and we talked about having a, a well-being prescription for yourself and knowing about the people who listen to this podcast, I'm sure what they will do is they'll go in the garden and they will burn every single piece of chocolate they have in the house and they will <laughs> never buy it again. But I don't think that's what you're saying, is it? No. You're not saying you can't have those little bits every now and again, but just be aware of what you're doing to yourself and, and how you can function best. That's right. And because... You know, I'm a normal human being just like everyone else. I know my numbing agent is to eat crisps. We call them chips in Australia. But what I also know is when I have a cupboard full of chips, I'm more inclined to eat them every night. When I don't have chips in the cupboard, I can't eat them. And so you might say to yourself, right, I've got five shifts. On the fifth day when I'm finished, I'm having treats. I'm nurturing myself. I don't have to get up tomorrow morning so if I feel sluggish or a bit blah after eating all that carbohydrates, it's not the end of the world. Whereas if that is my default, my only thing to kind of give me a lift, one bag of chips is never enough. And you know what it's like. You eat two bags of crisps and you think, why the hell did I do that to myself? And then you ruminate and you're mean and nasty to yourself. None of those things lead to well-being. Alcohol, everything is okay in moderation. Everything is okay in moderation. You've got to know when you're using stuff to try and numb how you feel, that's when it becomes a problem. And just try and swap those things out. So instead of eating crisps, one of the things I try to do is I'll ring a friend or drag my partner Nick out for a walk. And I don't feel like it and I already feel depleted in energy. But once I've gone out and looked at the world, it feels a bit better. You know, for those of you who saw the blood moon, uh, depending where you live in the world, the lunar eclipse last night. What a fantastic thing to do, to be outside walking and be, being able to experience that. That's eudaimonic happiness. Sitting on the couch, eating about a crips is hedonistic and then it doesn't last and then often we are angry at ourselves as well. I think we all know that when you went for the walk at the night time, you were looking for a, a dealer of crisps on the street corner <laughs> in order to get you some, some extra chips. That is true. You in the house. We've all been there where we look for that <laughs> undercover chip dealer. Uh, they do exist, I hear. Liz, that's a brilliant roundup of what well-being is. In our next episode, I think we want to talk a bit about protective factors and what we can do to pull all of this information together we've talked about in episodes one and two. Please do like and subscribe to the St. Emily's podcast. Not only do we have these episodes on well-being, but there's all sorts on medical education and clinical excellence and loads of good stuff. So please do recommend us to your friends and we'll see you again very soon for episode three in this very special series.